listening to Rattle and Pedal, diversion thoughts on marketing and growing professional services firms. Your hosts are Jason Malicki and Jeff McKay. I don't even know where we want to take this conversation yet, but the general sense that we had was to talk about brand relevance. And I was kind of going down all kinds of, you know, other avenues before we even started talking. So I guess maybe that's good or bad. I don't know. But the first thing that for me, I was making quick notes of things we could talk about, but awareness versus relevance, I think is important. One of the things that I continually see, and I guess I don't, I don't know if I see it as much as I used to, but we, we get creative briefs from clients or not, not a creative briefs are the wrong things. That's the wrong word, but they'll have a marketing thing that they're looking for an agency to partner with on. And they'll state their goal is to build brand awareness. And I always kind of just question the goal. I always feel like whenever the goal is to build brand awareness, that's just a lazy goal because someone hasn't really taken the time to really think about what they're really trying to do because that's just such an innocuous phrase. It's so difficult to, to really measure. So why? Are, what are we really trying to do here? So anyway, that's a really random comment. Awareness versus relevance. Maybe we just start with that just to be clear on what, what we mean by the two terms. I think that's a good place to jump in because most people don't make the distinction or if they hear the terms, they know one or, or not the other. In my experience, brand awareness is the brass ring, if you will, for professional services firms, partners, business developers love to pick up a phone and call people. And when they say the name that people know the firm name, they know what it stands for and they'll take the call. And relevance is something very different. Brand awareness is just, hey, I the market recognizes my name. You know, I've heard of Accenture. I've seen their ads at the airport, even though they may not specifically know anything beyond that exposure. Brand relevance, on the other hand, is a measure of a firm's marketplace credibility. And it's normally on an issue of capability. You know, McKinsey really has relevance in the area of strategy. The big four firms have very strong relevance in accounting. And you might argue that, you know, the big four has, you know, really strong relevance around audit or a particular type of audit or tax uh, discipline in those keep cascading down into smaller and smaller issues and markets where their relevance stands out in conjunction with their awareness. But it is their relevance that is really driving the perception of those brands. Are there really any professional services firms that have big awareness? You know what I mean? And I don't know if we want to dump it into average consumers. I think that's probably the typical consumer. I think that I don't necessarily mean that, but maybe the average, just a general business person? I think there are. They normally go hand in hand with size. So McKinsey is well known. Let me take a step back. They generally go hand in hand with size and age. So McKinsey, most people have heard of McKinsey. I remember when Anderson Consulting was rebranded Accenture and how much money they poured in building awareness of that new brand name. And when that name came out, you know, there was a lot of, of you know, fun made of how silly it sounded. <laughs> but I remember my grandmother saying to me, do you now work for Accenture? Because she knew I worked for Anderson. 
But that name transition and the amount of investment that they put into that reached a level of my, you know, 70 year old plus grandmother. Yeah. And she was aware of the change. That's not their, their target market. You know, she's never going to buy anything from them, but she was aware of the change. Now, she yeah. could tell you anything that Accenture did, but that is ubiquitous brand awareness. And I think anybody that through an airport, gosh, how could you have tiger ads? Well, and maybe to your point, the objective was pure awareness. They just wanted every you know people to know that Accenture existed, and they didn't at that point. They weren't trying necessarily to tie it to capability. I mean, yeah, you you could even argue the the huge Tiger Woods campaign, which I would I would say is one of the most successful professional services broad brand campaigns I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. Tied Accenture to high performance, but didn't tie them to any specific capability. It didn't build relevance necessarily, mm-hmm. unless you consider perform- is a high performance relevance. I, I, don't, I don't, you know, I, I mean, I guess you think of Accenture for high performance in any any way as is the is the output of that. But no, that's really interesting. Was it was Accenture publicly traded at the time when they made that name change? Do you remember? Oh, I should know that, but I don't. I don't think they were. I was thinking through my head why why firms choose to make massive investments like that. Because it's rare, right? There's not that many firms that have. IBM has, mm-hmm. Accenture has. Mm-hmm. I'm hard pressed to think of anybody else that has made any type of investment at that scale well, uh, to be they, to be known. They they really had to. They needed to have enough rocket fuel to clear the gravitational pull of Anderson, and Anderson was a really really strong brand. And Anderson Consulting contributed significantly to that. But in the arbitration, they weren't allowed to take that. And they needed to make a very clean break and get to their own identity very quickly. And I, I think the campaign was brilliant because it was singular in its objective. And that is to move from being known as Anderson Consulting or AC to Accenture. And that's all they were concerned about. They weren't concerned about relevance. They just wanted to know, wanted people to know that Anderson Consulting is now Accenture and it was wildly successful. The rest of it came later. Yeah. Well, the funny thing is, you know, you lived some of this, so I, you'll, you'll probably laugh when I say this, or maybe even disagree with me when I say this. But I remember at the time when that arbitration ruling came out, I, I thought it was going to be really damaging to Anderson Consulting because I thought the Anderson name was such a powerful, had so much equity in the marketplace that that separation was going to really cost them. The separation ended up, in my mind, ended up being the best thing that ever could have happened to them because it got them out from under the massive trap that that name became a few years later. And they had sort of, and to your point, that huge investment had separated them so so farly, so quickly that when Arthur Anderson started having all those issues, that they weren't sucked down into that ecosphere with them. And I think that was serendipity. That was not part yeah, of it. Yeah, that wasn't planned. No, I didn't mean it that way at all. But it, just, it was so fascinating how that played out. Yeah, sorry. I didn't mean that. I didn't mean to imply that that was, <laughs> that was part of the strategy. But so, so there's something important about that example in terms of brand awareness and what firms normally do or don't do if they do a rebrand and they need to build awareness is that that firm over invested in that change. And that's represented by the fact that my grandma knew about it. But I think it's much smarter if you're going to do something like Accenture did 
that you plan on over-investing because those mm-hmm. over-invested dollars weren't necessarily wasted as opposed if you don't hit that tipping point of changing the market's perception and, and getting out of that gravitational field, almost all the money that you spent is going to be squandered. So you, if, if, if there's ever a time to over-invest, it's at that rebranding point, building awareness for something new or, or different. Do you remember March 1st by any chance? Do you remember those guys? Yep. I can't remember for the whole story, but they did a similar thing, right? I think they were called US Web or something, USA Web or something really kind of innocuous. And they did this massive, they rolled up a bunch of companies in a, in a digital strategy consultancy. This was in 2001. And they launched the whole brand on this massive umbrella with TV coverage, you know, TV ads. I mean, like a big launch on March 1st of 2001, I believe. Mm-hmm. Uh, the company name was was March first, so they sort of followed that blueprint. They they subsequently imploded. I can't remember how long after, but pretty quickly they imploded. And they had, to your point, I, they they had overinvested. You know, not just on the brand, kind of across the board, right? I mean, they had massive growth plans hinged on you know a lot of false assumptions relating to the dot com era. Mm-hmm. But I mean, interesting. I don't know if there's a lesson there as well. <laughs> I think there is. And, and I think the other lesson that's really valuable there, in my experience, and I've seen this time and time again, roll-ups seldom work. <laughs> <laughs> Mergers are, I don't know, at best a 50-50 proposition. Accenture was able to make that leap, not just because of the investment, because of, but of the culture and the people and the reputation that undergirded it before it even started to rebrand itself. And I I think that's an important lesson. A rebrand, a rename, building awareness of something does not fix underlying, you know, shortcomings, particularly at the cultural or, or capability level. I think that's another important lesson that you illustrate there. But let's go back to relevance for a second. So if awareness is, and I like the way you frame this in the the blog post that was the inspiration for this. If awareness is about just knowing of the firm, maybe not necessarily being able to connect it to any one specific capability or competency, what is relevance really about? So relevance is about credibility and it's credibility in terms of a capability to solve a problem, an issue, or realize some possibility. And most professional services firms get this wrong and they invest heavily in awareness and try to just build familiarity with the name. And they waste a lot of money doing that because it doesn't really produce revenue for, for most firms. Whereas relevance is more consistent with the way Prudent Pedal and Rattleback think about strategic marketing and brand building. And that's having a strong point of view and the wherewithal to be invited to the table. If you want to get a measure of your relevance very cost effectively, just figure out how often you're invited to the table in order to propose. And I don't mean just necessarily RFPs coming in over the transit, although that would be the first place to look. But if you're not even being invited to the table, the market does not see you as a relevant player. Now, if you're invited to the table, you may have relevance, but you may be seen 
as a player, but maybe not an expert player. So if you take an example, I'm sure, you know, McKinsey is oftentimes always invited to the table for those firms that have the wallets that can afford a McKinsey. But a firm like, say, L.E.K., who does good work, but they may not be seen as relevant in solving bigger company issues at the level that a McKinsey is. Or or even a, a big four firm may not be invited to the table along with McKinsey, BCG, Bain, and an LEK because they're not seeing a pure strategy. You know, the interesting thing is that, well, a couple of things that jumped out to me based on some of the things you just said. For me, there's a sort of, there's a direct relationship between relevance and thought leadership for me. I, I find it very difficult to imagine a reality where you can get a, a a meaningful subsection of a market to really believe that you're relevant in a certain capability or a certain area without having either a significant body of work in that area that people can clearly point to and know you are a part of, or thought leadership, you know, a depth of thought leadership as a proxy for that. And the other thing that jumped out to me was that when when firms talk about brands and rebranding, that actually does strike at the heart of what I I sense their issue often is, is that they don't feel that they're relevant anymore. The things that they're getting invitations for, it's not that they're not getting invitations, they're getting the wrong invitations. They're getting invited to things that they don't feel are the right fit. And that's when that when that starts to happen, they they suddenly say, "Well, wait a minute. Why are we getting these types of inquiries and not these other types of inquiries that we really want?" That is spot on, Jason. And I've seen that a lot as well as a consultant in particular. And I'll give you an example. I met with the CEO of a market research firm, and they specialized in qualitative research. And they wanted to rebrand and they asked me to come in and talk to them about rebranding and positioning. And I sat down with the leadership team and walked them through Prudent Petal's growth model. And, you know, the firm had already allocated, I don't know, $100,000 or something to a a rebrand. And they were moving down that path of of rebranding, updating their tagline and their visual identity in order to build awareness with millennials. A lot of their traditional buyers had retired or had gone into work in the same market as competitors for them. But after a quick conversation to them, they realized that the market had really shifted and people weren't interested in qualitative research. They were more interested in social listening. They were more into the analytics and quantitative analysis coming out of more of the technology platforms where they had these huge data sets, but they didn't know how to really decipher what was happening in them. So this firm would have spent, you know, over $100,000 trying to rebrand itself and build awareness among millennials when the fact of the matter was Their market had just shifted, their buyers had started to change, and they wanted something different. And it really didn't have anything to do with millennials. The market had just kind of passed them by, as you described, and they missed the telltale signs that you just described. They were starting to get different types of proposals. Their traditional 
buyers and buyers' titles had changed. And they noticed it, but they didn't connect the dots. Yeah. And then for them, it was, oh, we need to rebrand because our growth has slowed and we need an awareness campaign so that people know we're still here. Well, they knew you were still there. They just didn't see you as relevant to how they wanted to dissect the market. You're listening to Rattle and Pedal, divergent thoughts on growing your professional services firm. Your hosts are Jason Malicki, principal of Rattleback, the marketing agency for professional services firms, and Jeff McKay, former CMO and founder of strategy consultancy Prudent Pedal. If you find this podcast helpful, please help us by telling a friend and rating us on iTunes. Thank you. Now back to Jason and Jeff. So this is going to be a really strange comment, but what is a brand? <laughs> you know, I mean, uh, whenever this topic, I, I've sort of come to, you know, I, I always say this, I'm a recovering brand strategist, meaning that we have done tons of brand work over my 20 years in the agency business. And my sense, my, I guess my experience is that usually when people talk about brands, they're talking about the visual systems that represent a company. Mm-hmm. Or they're talking maybe about the tone of voice that presents the company to the market, like how the company talks. But I I guess I would argue everything that you just described is the brand. So the firm that you talked about, yes, they needed to rebrand. It doesn't necessarily mean they needed to redo their logo. It doesn't necessarily mean they needed to redo their website. I have no idea. I don't know the firm at all. But they clearly had a underlying brand strategy framework that was broken. You know, they, they didn't have clarity on what it is that they provided to whom and what their compelling point of view was on how it should be done. And that, that to me, is the essence of a brand strategy model, regardless of what the, the visual representation of that might be. I don't know if that makes any sense. It makes a lot of sense. And if you look at that one little firm, their brand had some really solid attributes to it. The firm was primarily female. They had incredibly unique and and deep relationships with their traditional buyers. They had a unique perspective on research and its fit into growth and and marketing strategy. That is, it had a phenomenal foundational brand built around a culture and a point of view. What they had lost was a relevance in the market because they let slip the focus of those core capabilities or their core capabilities had become commoditized and they hadn't adapted the core capabilities that sat on top of that cultural foundation. And they didn't invest in their expertise of these emerging areas of either issues or solutions. And they started to fall off the screen as a result. So from a brand perspective, you know, they had 80% of what they, they needed from to, to keep a strong brand. Yeah. They didn't have were the other components because the three brand drivers, I mean, these, these are universal for professional services. They are expertise. I'm going to pay you because you're smarter than me in, in something demonstrated results so that I'm not afraid that you're going to be able to deliver what I'm hiring you for and relationship. So, you know, they had really eroded in expertise and results 
And as a result, their relationships were starting to, to falter too. But they just needed to trim the sales and get focused and be relevant in the new market and do exactly what you had said earlier in our conversation, incrementally take their game up and refine the brand as the market evolved with them. Yeah. The interesting thing about the, the mini case study you're describing is that it sounds as though they had a pretty compelling point of view on on the marketplace in terms of the role of research and accelerating their client success. Yet the underlying, the what, that's that's sort of, the, I like to call that the why. The point of view is the why. The what, meaning the, the actual way they went about research was sort of becoming seen as less relevant, which is pretty fascinating. I mean, usually... Usually, I, I, we, we tend to see the opposite. We see firms where they kind of have a, I'm not going to say they, but they have clarity on what it is they do for the marketplace, but they don't really have a very, really strong sense of, of how it's unique or, or why their point of view on how it's done is different than someone else's. Mm-hmm. When, we, when we talk about brands, I like to split them into two halves. I like to say there's a strategy and there's a platform. And the strategy is everything that underpins the type of things we're talking about. You know, where is it you want to be relevant for who, how, and why? And then the platform is just the physical manifestation of that. It's the visual identity sets. It's the messaging. It's the language. And I would argue that firms can fall out of touch in both dimensions. So the firm you described had fallen out of touch in its strategy because the service offerings, the way that they were going about research was no longer relevant. And hence, they weren't getting invited for the opportunities they wanted to get invited for because, quite frankly, the buyers were looking for something different. Mm -hmm. But then the platform itself can also become out of touch, meaning that a firm just looks and sounds out of touch, sounds dated, looks dated. The best analogy I can think of is the whole the whole Buick campaign, right? You know, this is not your grandfather's Buick, you know, so everything about Buick as a company looked and felt and sounded old. And so the company was aggressively trying to change that. And I guess what, what I've seen in the marketplace for a lot of firms is that they just sort of they, they neglect that side of the story. They just think, well, logos don't matter. That's old noise. But at some level, if you don't sort of iterate a little bit as you go, if you don't really make investments to modernize your communications and the way you look and the way you sound and the way you communicate as a firm, eventually you're just going to be out of touch. You're going to be way out of date. And then you're sort of forced to make a, a pretty big correction because there, you know, there is that sense when, it, you know, when you hit a firm's website or you, you know, you're first interacting with this firm, if they just feel dated, then you just exit as a buyer. Like, no, I don't want to do business with these guys. They just don't look like they're contemporary. They don't feel like they're contemporary. They don't sound like they're contemporary. They sound like they're out of touch, even if they have all the capabilities underlying it that you need. So there's some iteration cycle that a firm needs to follow, I would argue, on sort of the platform side of this. They they can't neglect it. I mean, they can't just not invest in those types of things because you will find yourself irrelevant even if you have something powerful to say if the way you've packaged the story is not current. I'm thinking about that. Yes, I think you're, you're right. I think it's nuanced. Maybe this is a consultant in me coming out. I think there are, and I'll use some consumer brands to to illustrate this, but then I'll I'll bring it back and and apply it to professional services. I think there are brands that are cutting edge, new and fresh, and always are that way. Apple, Amazon, Google are those types of companies and they're very successful. 
But I also think there is a time and a place for traditional, timeless brands. Brooks Brothers, for example, timeless, traditional brand, but they stay up to date. But when you look at them, you think classic, never out of style. And there's a strength in, in that as well. In a Tiffany's, I would put in that traditional, timeless brand. That Tiffany box is, has not changed in over a century. But what goes into the box combines traditional and new stuff. But it's that experience of Tiffany that is just timeless. And when you see that Tiffany box and that Robin Egg blue, it stirs some emotion in you. And when I talk about brand, I always, I always use Tiffany because I think, you know, that box is that timeless brand identity component that you talk about that when that gift is presented, you know exactly who it is. But what's most relevant is what's inside the box because you know it's going to be something good. And I think most firms should think in those terms, get your box, but what goes into the box needs to evolve with the market. And that is the thought leadership and the point of view and the expertise associated with the box. So if you go and look at a law firm, for example, that is a market where traditional Brooks Brother type of branding could be really, really beneficial and leveraged well. But you could become out of date if you don't manage it well. But if ever there were a professional services industry that could benefit from that, of that stability, that timelessness associated with law, that's a place to exploit it. Now, a company like Accenture or an upstart firm around technology, West Monroe Partners, those have to be evolving until they reach that point where they can be timeless. And that timelessness won't come for decades, but they still need to be cutting edge. I agree with a lot of what you said. I mean, I agree with the notion that what's most relevant is what's in the box or that idea of, well, in the case of a firm, the expertise, what it is that they're selling, what they're delivering to the market is where they probably need to be most nimble because the market is going to evolve. I would say it's very dangerous to present the marketplace as having two polarized ends, one that is cutting edge and one that's traditional and stoic and, st- and, and, and st- stayed. I would argue that there's a, that's more of a continuum. Now, I don't know if you meant it to present it that way, but there's a fluid gray space from the left edge to the right edge, and most firms occupy somewhere within there. And the analogy I'll give you is this. What's an oldie to you? In an music? What, are, what, 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 are, what are the oldies? <laughs> when, when were the oldies produced? Right. All right. So for the purpose of your example, I'll step into this trap. I would say for me, the uh, the oldies are the big bands. Oh, wow. That's actually further back than I would have guessed. Uh, so the big bands are the 20s, right? The big bands are, are the golden, the gilded age. So in your mind, when you think of something that's traditional and something that is timeless, you hearken back to that. If you go to my daughter and say, you know, who's 12, say, what's an oldie? To her, the oldies are the, the 80s and the 90s, to be quite frank. The oldies are the 90s. Mm-hmm. So something that feels, you know, 
tied to the 80s or 90s to her would feel would feel old. So the, the only reason I'm making this comment is when you think about these these timeless traditional, especially on the consumer side, traditional brand expressions. Those are carefully managed and manipulated to constantly feel traditional and timeless. They're not just left to pasture, which is really what most firms tend to do. They say, well, we want to be traditional. Hence, we're going to leave this thing alone that we haven't touched since 1982 because that's core to our brand essence that we're going to be a traditional brand. But the reality is, is if you want to maintain that traditional feel, you, you essentially have to sort of constantly iterate what traditional means and feels like to stay relevant. And that's why I would argue it's more like a gray continuum. It's like you have to kind of think about, you know, somewhere along that lines. Now, the, where I will totally agree with you is I just don't think it's quite as important as any of the, of any, any of what's inside the box, right? At the end of the day, what a logo looks like, what a, you know, it's hard to make a case that that packaging that wraps around the story is as important as what's inside the box. The, the, you know, the, the expertise, I think you call it the, the expertise, the results and relationships. Those are clearly more important. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I would never disagree with that. But I, I would also say it's very dangerous to jump into a path that says that the, the packaging is not that relevant and that we want to be timeless. Hence, that means we don't have to touch it or think about it. That's, I think that's a big mistake because usually that's what gets firms into traps, at least on the platform side of the brand, is when they think, well, we're traditional, so we're just going to leave this alone. Then they find themselves out of touch. Mm-hmm. And then they have to do a reset. And when they do have to do that reset, now suddenly they've had to fast forward what was traditional to their new version of traditional. And they've completely broken what they initially were trying to, to, to deliver in the first place. Yeah. So I would argue you, you, you need to be constantly, not constantly, that's, that's, that's an extreme exaggeration. You need to be regularly thinking about whether or not the way you're presenting the firm to the marketplace is still relevant relative to how you want it to be presented. And what does regularly look like? I don't know, every four or five years, three to five years, something like that. doesn't mean you have to do radical reinvention every three to five years, but you need to be looking at that side of your story with that level of regularity, I would say. I I think you're absolutely right. It is constant vigilance. And without being too ethereal and and losing our our listeners. I I have already done that. (laughs) I I do want to go back to your music example, because I think it's, it's very applicable to firms who are trying to figure out how to position and how to grow. And this whole concept of awareness versus relevance is really manifesting the types of discussions that go on inside firms or should be going on inside firms. So if you go back to your music, you talked in terms of oldies. And oldies is a relevant term, and it's an easy one to kind of throw out to the market And depending on your ideal client, which is the fundamental starting point for all of this, how they define oldie is going to be relevant. Your daughter would define oldies as 80s or 90s. You might go back to the 50s or 60s and you put me back. (laughs) But the big but, I think a more relevant way to think about brand and positioning and relevance is more by genre. So if you look at jazz or blues or classical, those are timeless genres. And you could position in one of those as we are a jazz firm, we are a blues firm. Rock and roll would probably be 
timeless to some degree, but I would argue not as timeless as those earlier three. Hip hop would not be timeless at all. It's cutting edge. And then you'd throw country somewhere in there Mm. or R&B. Those to me would be traditional, but really morphing in a lot of ways. And if you listen to country music, I mean, they even have, you know, the sound of country music has evolved considerably over the last 20 or 30 years. And they're actually introducing rap into country. And to me, that's the kind of incremental relevance to a newer audience than maybe a George Strait or, you know, even before, you know, somebody like George Strait. That, I think, is a more relevant way to think about how you position around timeless or cutting edge. I really like that analogy, you know, and I like that analogy a lot because it's just a different way of slicing the same thing. What are you trying to make the marketplace feel about mm-hmm. your firm from a brand perspective, which is just an extension of what you want them to think about your firm from a relevance perspective. We want them to think that we're leaders in strategy work or we're leaders in analytics. But we want them to feel that we're this type of firm. And that's that to me is the essence of the platform of the brand, right? Mm-hmm. And, I, and I really like that analogy. And I also think because it's such a good analogy, it's such a great place to stop. <laughs> so, I don't know if we've covered new ground or not, but we certainly have you know, dissected the, the role of awareness versus relevance and how they fit together in a firm. And I hope that those of you listening enjoyed it. So thanks for hanging with me this, this last half an hour, Jeff. Enjoyed it tremendously. Listeners, just make sure you know what problem you're trying to solve before you start investing. <laughs> money. Otherwise, you're going to lose a lot of time and resources. I would say it's pr- that's prudent advice, but I don't like the word prudent, so I'm just going to say wise. <laughs> <laughs> I'll talk to you next time. Thank you for listening to Rattle and Pedal, divergent thoughts on marketing and growing professional services firms. Find content related to this episode at rattleandpedal.com. Rattle and Pedal is also available on iTunes and Stitcher. <laughs> <laughs>